0: Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today I welcome back to the podcast, Daniela Mello. Daniela is a lecturer of social science at Boston University. This is the third time that I have her on the podcast. And it's always a very interesting conversation because Daniela knows about social movements. And with that, I ask her to talk to me about what happened in the United States in the January 6th in Washington, how to understand that in populism terms, and how that translates to also the member states on the European Union. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of May. But before we start the conversation, you will notice there's a moment in the podcast where Daniela and I talk about the future of the Republican Party in the United States. At the time when we recorded this, we had no idea how much a political party can fold and collapse under the influence of a leader with authoritarian tendencies. And now, with no further ado, I bring you Daniela Melo. I'm here with Professor Daniela Melo. Daniela, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you for having me, Ricardo.
0: Uh, You've become one of the top um, frequent flyer miles here in the podcast. This is the third time <laughs> that we'll be talking. And as a previous note, I should say to our listeners that we're not going to make too many podcasts about the United States and what happened politically there. This is a podcast about European Union. But... I asked Daniela to talk to me because of course what we saw on the 6th of January in the capital in Washington and how that can translate to other countries and in Europe we're seeing a little bit of an emergency of you know not only radical policies but also radical attitudes. So I asked Daniela to talk to me about that because she's an expert on social movements but before that. Um, just a top-line reaction to what happened on that fateful day. How did you live that moment?
1: Ricardo, I, um, I, I think I lived that moment the same way most Americans did. Um, even though it wasn't completely unexpected, it was very shocking, nonetheless. And we were all glued to our screens and, and listening to the radio all afternoon, not believing our eyes. Um, as the events were unfolding, so there was a lot of a lot of fear, um, disbelief, and, um, and 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 the realization, I would say, towards the end of, of that day and in the following days, that what happened had been quite serious, that it had been a veritable attack on our democratic institutions and our democratic process, and that it cannot go unpunished, in a way. Right. That the rule of law needs to prevail, um, that if we are to move forward from this particular moment in the United States, we need to make sure that the rule of law prevails, because if there is no sort, no sort of uh, punishment for for this sort of action and for the incitement of this sort of action, then we are basically accepting that our democratic institutions do no, no longer have the power to punish those who attack them, um,
0: I couldn't agree with you more and one thing that I thought was really interesting and I'd love to have your opinion on this because we Europeans, we are used to see countries where democracy collapses. I'm thinking about Russia, but also in Turkey, where you have goons in the streets and they take over governmental infrastructures and they shut down the media and so on and so forth. But of course, as it always happens in this kind of situation, we never thought that this could happen in the United States. So getting into my first question to you, and as a specialist on social movements, how can a party, which is a Republican party, with the history that they have, and then later on we'll try to transfer this to the European reality, gets taken over by this jingoistic, nationalistic, a completely authoritarian frame of mind to see not only politics, but to see their own country.
1: So many things happened. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to, you, to your question, which is a very timely one, because the discussion about what is going to happen with the Republican Party is, is very much one of the discussions of the moment. The, the short answer to your question is that it happened progressively. It didn't just happen overnight. Right? And that over the past few years, we have seen the Republican Party um, progressively open the door to more and more radical voices within the party itself. So if we look back to 2009, 2010 and, and the beginnings of the, the Tea Party movement, right? We then see Tea Partiers be elected into Congress and form a Tea Party caucus and be accepted by the Republican Party as an influential group within the party itself. And some of those Tea Party elements are the elements that then converted into MAGA elements, into Trump elements, right? And that continue to be um, some of the some of the main supporters of of the now. Um gone President Trump. so the party, in some ways, created some space and and cre- and and gave a home, a roof for some of these most radical voices and and allowed them to um to proliferate to a certain extent. I mean, it wasn't just a party that did it, right? I mean, this was done th- this was a movement that was happening in society that that other institutions like Fox News was certainly helping to, you know fan the flames of of this type of of rhetoric and and mobilization, Um, the questioning of not just the political elites, but of the political institutions, the questioning of what is truth itself, everything is up to question. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that there were multiple moments and movements that led to this particular juncture in which the Republican Party now has to decide whether it's going to cleanse itself of this faction. Right and take on this internal fight within the party, or whether they're going to continue to be Trump's party. I mean, Trump certainly th- seems to think that he has the Republican party in its in his hand right now.
0: Right, so stepping back a little bit from the American reality and trying to transfer this more as political science. So when you think about, for example, what's happening in countries like Portugal, like Sweden, Austria, hungary poland here in european union where you see this movements not only exist but then collecting more and more people because their message it's really clear one thing that i find very interesting is that nowadays want to be authoritarians they don't hide their intentions anymore they say like for example what's happening in portugal right now as we record this podcast he says, I want to expel these people, I want to expel this ones, This ones that have to live in misery because these ones need to live better. And still, people want to vote on this kind of political solution. How do you explain that?
1: Okay, let's, let, let's speak about the Portuguese example because the Portuguese presidential ex- elections happened just a few days ago. And as we know, um, a far-right candidate named Ventura um, ranked third in the presidential elections and was able to get... Correct me if I'm wrong. Around twelve percent of the vote, right? So how does this happen? Um, a lot of this rising far right populists that we see across Europe, just like Trump, are following almost exactly the same playbook. And in my view, that playbook has at least three main pillars, right? One of them is you need a scapegoat, right? And the scapegoat tends to be more or less the same, though it varies. In, depending on the national context from state to state, right? So in Portugal, the scapegoat is the Roma population, um, also called gypsies, um, the immigrants and refugees, right, who are living on the dole while hardworking Portuguese are not getting any help, right? It's, it's that very narrative that you also see with Trump and that you see across Europe. You see with Vox, you see with the AFD um, and so many other far-right groups. Another one is an appeal to, in Portugal, he called it the good people, right? Uh, it doesn't translate very well to, to English, but, you know, going to church, appealing to religiosity, to conservative moral values, um, having a moral message about the society we once were versus the society we now are, um, and appealing to that return to morality and we see that with that particular candidate. I mean, I saw countless images of Ventura going to church and praying and, and wanting to be recorded and filmed in church, praying, right, to appeal um, to that right-wing electorate that, that, that votes on issues of morality, on, you know, that sort of conservatism. Not just a religious conservatism, but I, I like to think more of it in terms of a moral conservatism. And... The third, you know, great strategy that I see that seems to me to be uh, very comparable across cases is an appeal to the upper middle class and the middle and and the upper classes, right, on the issue of taxes and government control. And you're being asphyxiated by the government. The government is overtaxing you, and somehow this this populists are going to appeal to you know allowing business to to run better to um, to, to be less encumbered um, by the government. So you see, I mean, there, there's certainly other aspects to this, but this this is really the three variables, these are the three variables that I see most consistently used across, this, uh, across the spectrum in Europe, and certainly by Trump himself, you know? So you're actually trying to form a new electorate. You're bringing together... You know, electorates that traditionally would be on the right or on the left or, you know, voting for liberal conservatism or something like that. And you're trying to steal that electorate, right, and form, form a new group, right, that, that will come both from the right and from the left and from the working class to support this new type of leader
0: kind of new coalitions and the example that's the word
1: I was missing thank
0: you (laughs) you're welcome the example that you're giving about moral conservatism and trying to get that kind of votes it always to me always reminds me of what happens in Poland with uh, the party of law and justice PIS, where they go exactly that kind of uh, arguments that we're just saying and that is Poland, it's good when it's pure and when we're get we're getting back to our values and to our moral values. No abortion, no gay rights. Before I ask you the one million euro question, what is your take? And this is kind of a, a curveball that I'm throwing here into Daniela. We're not; she was she's not ready for this question. But what do you think? It's the best way to deal with this kind of problem when we're thinking about governing solutions. So again, let's go to Portuguese example, let's go to the German example, or the Swedish one, where you have parties that are clearly, clearly at the margin of the political spectrum. And they say, they keep saying, we are going to be part of the government, we are going to be a governing solution. Should the main parties try to bring them in and then try to rein them in? Or do you think that the best thing is not to have them anywhere near power.
1: Like part of the solution is, of course, surveillance and security and making sure that we know what the most radical elements associated um, with these types of of ideologies. I'm not speaking specifically about party members, but, you know, the, the, the radical groups that mobilize and support others to join the cause of these parties. Um, and on whom these parties also rely in order to, you know, have people come out in in great support for them. So we need we we certainly need to in the United States we need we need the strategy, and in Europe is similar in which we're actually paying clear attention to these newly mobilized individuals, newly mobilized youth. Um, supporting very radical agendas, sometimes very racist agendas and very xenophobic agendas. But it goes beyond that, in my view. Um, we, what I also see, and this is true in Portugal, this is true in the United States, this is true across, I mean, this is true all over Eastern Europe, where we're also seeing the rise of these types of parties and movements is that they are actually questioning the very basis of the transitions to democracy themselves, right? They're questioning the memory of what democracy is. They're questioning the legitimacy of the the democratic constitutions, right? That are in place. Like in Portugal, it's it's incredible to hear the very questioning of the Portuguese Constitution, of of the nature of the revolution, of the whole historiography, right, of who we are and why we should prize the democracy that we have, you know, was sort of looking back into whether it's the communist or you know the the conservative um, authoritarian regimes that we had in Eastern and Western Southern Europe. And saying, well, maybe they weren't that bad. There were great things during were in that period as well. There, there's an entire rewriting of history. And you see that in the United States when, you know, Trump tried to literally rewrite the history books with that commission that he put in place to, you know, tell the great American history from yes. what he considered to be the true perspective. And I see this across Europe as well. So I do you know, I, I do think that part of the solution is more civic education and more civic engagement, right? I, that that democracies need to realize that um, they are not they they cannot take democratic values for granted. That democratic values need to be nurtured. They need to be taught. The history of who we are a collect, as a collect the collective identity of who we are as a society as a democratic society and why pluralism is difficult but and it may not always be perfect but it's still the best solution that we have um to try to get along and and and, and move together as a society that sort of conversation at least in some of the cases that you and i i am sure <laughs> i'm more familiar with hasn't always been present in the past 40 50 60 years i'm talking about the the European case now and they're being brought into question right now by this far-right groups right um so even the the it gets enmeshed with the entire you know moral conservatism that we were talking about earlier but they are feeding off each other right and they're complementing each other as um as narratives that are anti-democratic
0: so you already answered half of the 1 million euro question so that's 500,000 euros <laughs> oh, that's in the not- bank already now the other 500,000 euros is what then we what can we do then to those people that are already outside that system of civic education and engagement those people that now the expression is irrede- irredeemable they are not reachable they live in a conspiratory frame of mind They are anti-democracy, they are anti-establishment, and if they can, they will storm, you know, a government building. Maybe sometime we can see that happen in Europe. I surely hope not. Do we have to get ready to live with 10% of the population that are just completely insane?
1: I don't know that I have a very good answer to that particular question. I mean... If we look at the people, at what we know right now about the people that participated in the storming of the Capitol in the United States, right, you realize that a a big chunk of those people were ordinary citizens, right? They were unaffiliated individuals, some of them unaffiliated, but with military backgrounds or police backgrounds, backgrounds in law enforcement. Um, and that has become one big issue in the United States and a conversation that I think Europeans are having as well, or if they're not, they should be having, which is why is it that so many of the individuals in our law enforcement agencies, in our military, feel attracted to these far-right messages and are themselves right, joining these groups? and then participating in these types of activities. But nonetheless, you know, a part of these individuals were solo individuals. Let's call them ordinary citizens. The other part of the individual storming um, the Capitol were already individuals radicalized, already participating in in groups that, you know, are under CIA surveillance. <laughs> and uh, Sorry, FBI surveillance,
0: probably CIA also.
1: Probably as well. (laughs) I guess we will find out eventually. (laughs) Also the CIA. But, you know, I'm thinking about groups like the Oath Keepers, like the Three Percenters, some of the conspiracy theorists of QAnon, um, the Proud Boys. So those individuals in particular, even though they're a small slice of this group of people who believe the big lie, right, which is what we're calling the big lie about the election being stolen in in the United States. Um, And I'm forgetting here, Christian nationalists, right? Christian nationalists were were coming back to this type of like moral conservative evangelical um, support for individuals like Donald Trump, right? The Christian nationalists are really the most loyal, the most fervent supporters of the president. Right. And and they have clearly they've continued to show that in the polls that we have after January sixth, the hardcore support of the president for the president are Christian nationalists. And they tend to merge religion with national identity. Right. They 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 have formed I guess what I'm saying is that a lot of the individuals who are taking part in this type of um organized um, actions and, and mobilizing into, into more radical groups and more radical factions. Um, they, they now see their national identity and their religious identity as indistinguishable from one another, from each other, right? Um, they see America as a Christian nation, they, and they see themselves as having a God-given mission to fight. I mean, where have we seen this sort of pattern? We've seen it all over the place, right? Just not necessarily with Christian groups, but here they are. Um, so, well, in Europe,
0: we did have with Christian groups.
1: Yeah. Right, right, right. Talking about the, the United States context. But right now, we, we basically have um, this this narrative of religious conservatives. Like, we have a number of ordinary people are religious conservatives who see themselves as being marginalized by these urban secular elites being canceled, right? And they're the victims of this cancel culture. They truly, truly believe uh, that the election was stolen, that our current government is illegitimate. Um, and And basically, we have a number of factors that could very easily lead to a small, but meaningful group of radical individuals right um, deciding to take matters into their hands over deciding to take matters into their hands over the next few years, because when groups stop believing the legitimacy of the government and they're made up of true zealots of true believers, you know not all of them become violent but their certainty is so absolute, that's only a small jump from absolute certainty to we must act on it. I mean, we saw that for, sorry, <laughs> go ahead. I was just going to make a comparison that that came to mind with, you know, the last great cycle of mobilization that the United States had in the 1960s, Right. Culminated with groups that uh, were perfectly moderate groups, like Students for a Democratic Society, which was, you know, the largest student movement in U.S. history, splintering into multiple groups, and one of those groups becoming the the radical Weather Underground, that then spent all of the 1970s trying to put bombs right in 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 U.S. buildings um, because they no longer believed in the legitimacy of the U.S. government to represent them.
0: And in this conversation I want you to go to something that you also work on which is the relationship between the United States and Europe and particularly with the European Union. This was a promise that I made to our listeners in the last podcast that we had together which is to get a little bit into what can be a relationship between the Biden administration and the European Union, the European Commission and even the European Parliament. What are you, th- what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, Biden has promised a return to multilateralism, right, and a return to alliances, um, a rapprochement with the Europeans on, on several fronts. And he certainly seems to be acting on it or trying to act on it as soon as possible. I'm I'm sure that um, you're aware yesterday, uh, one of the calls that Biden made was to Russia, right, and spoke and with Vladimir Putin and took a fairly hard line with Putin when it came to Ukraine with Navalny, like those issues that were completely swept under the rug um, during the Trump administration or not addressed at all, like the issue of Ukraine and the taking of Crimea and whatnot. So that's a very important signal that, um, that he's trying to send to the Russians and also to the American public, because he's really trying to show that he is going to follow a very different line from President Trump when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to Russia. But it's also a signal to the Europeans, right? It seems to me that um, Biden wants to address issues with, you know, a rising Russia, a rising China. And he wants the Europeans to be on the same side, to be aligned with the vision that the Biden administration has for the international system. It's not as clear that the Europeans are going to align <laughs> to the level that the Americans are hoping. Um, I was going to say that, you know, uh, right after the talk with, um, it's very telling that right after the the talk with Vladimir Putin, he put in a call to NATO, right, to talk with NATO Secretary General, uh, to talk about the common security threats, Um that that both sides face again. All of those are very important signals, both to the European public but also to the American public, because they're a complete departure from from you know the stance that the Trump administration has taken um, all of these years. It's it's very obvious that we are no longer going to have an anti-globalist sort of transactional and ad hoc foreign policy as we did, um, or one in which we see the European Union as a threat to the United States as a foe, if you recall that Trump actually referred to the European Union as a foe of the United States, Biden is trying to change the page on that. Um, I see some points of potential um, tension dealing with China, for instance. Uh, The Europeans are trying to push for their own um, agreement. With China, there's not a lot of clarity about what the, all the details of that are, except you know, to make it easier for the Europeans to trade with China and for European companies to operate in China, and we assume vice versa. And that clearly has been a concerning point for the Biden administration, that doesn't want to see Europe go its own way with China, wants to see Europe aligned with us, as the Americans, <laughs> I'm saying now. Uh, wants to see Europe aligned with 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 the American um, set of interests, right? When it comes and pertains to China, not just in trade, but also in terms of security. So, we may see we may see several points of fracture, uh, or a fracture may be too strong of a word, but certainly of tension. I, I'm just I'm still unconvinced that simply changing the administration is going to patch up <laughs> the. Um, all of the tensions and all of the issues of the past few years.
0: True, even here internally, it's not uncommon to see people saying that Europe needs to go their own way and not be as dependent on the United States. Me, as a transatlantic aficionado and also as a profound European uh, man, of course, I would like to have both blocks work together. Like you were saying, actually, I had the opportunity to express this opinion publicly on a webinar organized by the European Liberal Forum. And one last detail, in my opinion, and I would like to have yours also, was the cho- the choice of Anthony Blinken to Secretary of State, which I thought was a tremendous choice.
1: Absolutely. And, um, I mean, with Tony Blinken, it's not just him, but the other appointees as well. But we're going to see a return of the professionals, a return of the specialists, right? Um, a return of... You know the traditional <laughs> approach um, that Americans have taken um, to, to to international relations and to foreign policy. So again, uh, sort of a complete departure from the sort of transactional zero-sum game approach that we saw during during the Trump administration. And I, we may have touched on this last time we spoke, but I I, I can't state can't overstate how important it will be um, to know what what the ambassadors the Biden administration and Blinken are going to be sending out to some of these key positions, you know, who is going to be the ambassador to Brussels, who is going to be the, the ambassador to Germany, to, you know, to Paris and, and, and whatnot. This, it, it it is certainly going to be a set of, you know, hardcore professionals hardened professionals who understand the intricacies and the tensions and, and the histories Right. Of the countries that they're dealing with and, and the functioning of the European Union itself and that are true believers in the good that can come out of the European Union rather than trying to destroy it from within, which is some of what we've seen over the past few years.
0: Well, for my part, it's great to be able to have you as a guest on the podcast. Every time that you've came, our conversations have been very fruitful and very, very interesting. So again, thank you so much for coming. Here's the promise that you will be back soon so that we can continue this conversation.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much.
0: I'm back, just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify, and if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of May. On the 20th of May, and this is going to be online, it's a Zoom webinar, we have On the Agenda, Europe's LGBTIQ Equality Strategy. The seventeenth of May is the International Day against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia, and on the eleventh of March, the European Parliament passed a resolution initiated by Renew Europe Group, declaring the entire EU to be LGBTIQ Freedom Zone, a symbolic response to Poland LGBT Free Zones. How can we create an environment for LGBTIQ people to live their lives in freedom and tolerance? Will the EU Commission proposals suffice to achieve these goals? What initiatives should the private sector take to fight discrimination and foster an inclusive workplace, thus helping to put an end to violence and hate crimes against this community? Speakers include Bianca Nehoff, a workplace pride co-chair, and Ralf Froelich, president of LGBTI Liberals for Europe, that I had the pleasure to have on the podcast already. So... To know more about this event, just go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe Podcast, it's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.